welcome to On the Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. Hello, and welcome to this edition of On the Record, brought to you by Klausner Home Furnishings, the leading solutions provider for the home furnishings industry. Now, here's your host, Bill McLaughlin. Welcome to On the Record Podcast. My guest this week is Ron Wanick, chairman of Ashley Furniture Industries, which this year is celebrating its 75th anniversary. Now, while people associate you with Ashley, uh, you've actually only been in the furniture industry for a scant little 58 years, I understand, Ron. Um, That's right. So you grew up on a farm, and you have said that the only difference between a good farmer and a poor one is timing. Um, when you have the opportunity to get better, you go at it 12 to 14 hours a day. And you've also said that a good farmer is like a good furniture company um, or a good furniture executive. Tell me about that. Well, first of all, again, let's talk about timing. Uh, you know, in agriculture, if you don't do everything exactly when you have the weather in your favor, mostly, and uh, you you don't get your you don't get your your crops planted at the right time, you have a short window to get them planted, and you might miss the the opportunity if you don't take care of them at the right time, and you don't harvest them at the right time. All of these things have to be done and disciplined at exactly the right time. Now, a good farmer does, or a poor farmer does most of the work that a good farmer does, but it's mostly related to timing and whether they're successful or not. And the same thing is true in business. You know, when you have an opportunity, uh, you better seize the opportunity, make investments, uh, you know, do the work. and if you have products, you better get them to the market. You better produce them on time. And uh, you better harvest at the right time. Harvesting meaning uh, you, you, better, you better know when something is over and you better rebirth something else. So, so anyway, you know, my farm background, and it was, it was a very difficult background growing up, but it was a good, it was, it was discipline. You learn discipline. Agriculture is disciplined. So is business. Well, you've actually said you didn't have indoor plumbing until you were 11 years old on the farm, right? Right, right. <laughs> and electricity. There you go. Now, you, you've talked a lot about your farm background, but you actually did have some family members when you were young who were in the furniture business, and that uh, you said that that's influenced your desire to be in the business. Yeah, my grandfather and my great uncles uh, my, made furniture as a hobby and also they did they built boats and repaired boats and that sort of thing so so that was on my father's side my father's uh grandfather was a a farmer and uh he decided he wanted to be a farmer but he he grew up uh, in the city and went farming uh uh at the at, you know at probably 19 or 20 years old but but any but anyway, uh, so uh, I got that interest, and you know these guys were good. I mean they they made really great furniture, and I always wondered why they didn't do it as a business instead of uh, working in at that time was J R Watkins or McConnell's company, uh, and so so I I always questioned that and wanted to do it myself. So I got the inspiration and the desire to do that. It, at a very young age. 
What was your first job in the furniture business? Is that at Winona? My first job was packing uh, cabinets at uh, Winona Industries. And I might add, that was a great experience that I had. I came in as a rank-and-file worker, and it was a brand-new business. It was it was just started. Uh, so in a, in a brand-new business, you got a lot of opportunities to learn a lot of things and and uh, work in a lot of different areas. And I had three great bosses. One of them was a great uh, business guy, an innovator and, uh, and uh, futurist. The other one was an engineer, and the other one was just a really great administrator. And uh, I was involved with all three of them. We had about 400 employees. And uh, so it was a, it was a fair-sized business. And uh, went through all the struggles of starting a business and developing products. And it also was a cyclical business. But uh, you would uh, basically start manufacturing in April. And at the end of December, you would be pretty much the business cycle would be over. And you would lay people off and you would uh, start up again in April. Uh, I never liked that, and uh, I always, at that time, uh, wanted to get our own product line and so that we would control our own destiny at some point. But anyway, that was a, that was a great experience at Winona Industries, and I worked there for three years. I got promoted after about a year to a supervisor uh, and ran night shift. I had about, I had about 60 people at night. And uh, that also was a good experience because there was nobody else around and you had to make good, ex you had to make decisions and, and uh, do, do, do different stuff that where if it would have been during the day when you had a lot of management around, it would have been different. And from there, I was, uh, the owners of Winona Industries decided they wanted to start a new plant about 60 miles away at Red Wing Industries. And uh, I was one of the people that was chosen to go up there and start that out. And I had pretty much even though I didn't have the title of superintendent, I had a superintendent's position and uh, had about uh, probably about a hundred people that worked for me up there. And the, the interesting thing about a smaller business like that is you learn every aspect of the business from the design to the manufacturing, to the engineering, to the production, uh, to the HR. And back in the sixties and seventies, you didn't have all of the laws that you have today. So uh, you also, uh, you know, you could do all of those things uh, where today you got to have a lot more expertise around and uh, it's not as easy. Well, you still are very active. I mean, I remember you giving us a tour of Arcadia um, I, and I'm, I doubt you remember this, but I remember you walking um, a factory line and stopping to talk to a worker because you noticed that he was using the wrong tool that put his hand in the wrong position. And if he had continued, he would have got a repetitive stress injury. And you actually recognized that he had the wrong tool. I mean, that's a, a level of involvement in the business that um, I, I, I have never seen that. And that story has stuck with me. And that experience has stuck with me. You still have a very um, detailed knowledge of your business. Well, I would say that uh, we have a pretty detailed knowledge of the business. Uh, I'm certainly not an expert in IT, and I can manage to use my my personal computer. But uh, when it gets uh, heavy into the IT, uh, that's an area that I don't understand and probably don't want to understand. But other than that, uh, at one point in time, uh, as you develop businesses, you learn every aspect of the business, whether it be HR, whether it be engineering, whether it be design, uh, uh, you you learn it all, so so that's something that we've also tried to instill in our family business, and 
that's something Todd has that same uh, talent that I had, but he's also good at IT, which I was, which I am not good at today. But but anyway, understanding everything about the business, and obviously when you're a privately held company, uh, you can make you can make a lot of decisions because you don't really need to consult the board of directors or that sort of thing. You know whether you should make investments, whether you shouldn't make investments. Uh, you know whether you got the resources. Uh, you understand all aspects of the business, and as a result, uh, you can move very fast. Speaking of being a family-owned company. Um, how you bring family members into a company is always interesting. I think that that's something that a lot of family businesses wrestle with. How do you um, get people involved? I've talked to a number of people on the podcast who started in a family business and they tell stories of, um, you know, their first experience. You've been very structured in terms of that. I mean, you brought Todd in. I know your daughters have worked in the business. You now have grandchildren working in the business. How... I mean, do you have a, a specific path that you want them to follow? I know, for example, Todd was in China for 10 years. I know Travis just came back from Vietnam. I know Laura um, Forsythe, your granddaughter, did some time over in Asia. What, what's your philosophy about how you want to bring family members? What were some of the things you did, particularly with Todd, who's now CEO, um, when he was getting started in the business? Well, you know, Bill, it starts at a very young age, and at a very young age, I'm talking about when the kids are small at the dinner table. Uh, you know, fortunately, my wife was always very supportive, and, uh, you know, she loved seeing me like the furniture business and like business, and would always talk about all the fun that I was having in the business and enjoyed the business. And uh, she, she, she constantly over the years, uh, every day, would would tell me to have a good time in the business. And, and uh, you know, if you don't want your kids to be in the business, just complain, complain about how hard you work, about the stress, about all the tough times in the business. And then when it comes time to have them come in the business, uh, they don't wanna be in the business. <laughs> so so it's, it's very important uh, teaching kids a good work ethic and, and also showing them some good times about the business too. It can't be all drudgery. And uh, our kids started working in the in the business at a very early age. And anyway, uh, you you have to pay them. You have to also pay them and give them a, give them a reward for for the work that they do. Uh, where you know, especially my growing up, uh, you work but you never got paid for it. And uh, you know that certainly is a deterrent to anybody wanting to be in a business if there isn't any reward for hard work. But, you know, showing, showing the better side of the business, enjoying the business uh, as the kids are growing up and showing them that there are rewards uh, to being successful. And again, we, we had a very, my wife and I had a very humble start and, uh, you know, we didn't have any money in this sort of thing. And she also was good about me investing everything, taking risks and sacrificing lifestyle in, in the early years compared to maybe what other people would have done. Uh, and if you don't have that support, uh, that's also important too. But having an environment of enjoying and loving the business, uh, if you do that, uh, your kids are gonna wanna be in the business. If you do, do the opposite, complain about it continually, and then maybe someday you want your kids to be in the business, they're not gonna want any part of it. Why would they? 
That's true. Now, you said when you were um, young, you followed your father everywhere on the farm and um, were able to learn all about all of the different kinds of operations. Have you done the same thing when, when Todd first came into the business? Did you have a conscious strategy that you wanted him to um, to follow you and to be involved and to see the things that you did? Was that a, a strategic effort or did that just kind of come about organically? No, absolutely. Uh, we did that with, with the kids, uh, uh, They uh, especially Todd and uh, the other kids too. We, showed, we exposed them to the business uh, so that they they got to understand it, to learn all aspects of the business. And uh, so uh, it was important. Going to Asia was really, really important. Uh, uh, again, uh, Todd uh, spent five year, a five-year stretch there and uh, has spent years over there uh, since, uh, you know, various times. He's over there right now, as a matter of fact. And uh, you know, spending a big part of his life over there because, it, and especially at a young age, when he uh, we started Ashley Taiwan in 1984, and it was struggling uh, later on, and uh, he he rescued that business and uh, brought it back to profitability, and uh, made us successful there, and that was a good experience for him because he was a man. I mean, he ran all aspects of the business. If he would have been here at in uh, the U.S., he'd have had maybe one slice of the pie. Over there, he had the whole pie. So very much like I learned the business early on, very young, he had an opportunity to do that and get his arm around uh, his arms around the business and learn the business. Uh, and uh, so, uh, so we've done that with all of the kids. It's important that they go over and travel and be involved. And there's a lot going on in Asia, a lot of development. China and Vietnam and Taiwan, and uh, you know they need to understand global competition and uh, how good global competition is, really, and uh, and the fact that maybe in many areas they're superior to the United States. So they need to have a, a they need to recognize that and figure out how they're going to compete with it. So very important. So Todd went there in 1984. That was right after, two years after what you have called the 1982 moment. Tell people about the 1982 moment and the reinvention. Okay, but, but, but anyway, let me correct that. Todd okay. went over there, I believe, in 1988 after he graduated from college. Oh, okay. Uh, we, we established Ashley Taiwan in 1984. So that was what was caused by the 1982 moment, was the establishment of Ashley Taiwan. Exactly, because we could no longer compete with that product line in the United States, and uh, and we had to do something to change product lines here in the United States, uh, go from occasional tables to bedroom and manufacture our occasional tables uh, at that time at Ashley Taiwan. So tell me about, that's a very difficult decision. Um, I mean, that's an existential crisis moment for your company, a lot of companies kind of avoid that thought process, tell themselves it'll be okay. What was that moment like? What was that thought process? What convinced you that you really had to fundamentally change your business? Well, you know, I went through the cycle of uh, the electronics business and everything was made in the United States. Uh, first of all, the big companies like General Electric or Magnavox or companies like that, Motorola, they made their cabinets, they made their, they made 
let's call it the guts, the tubes of everything else that go inside of a cabinet. They did it all. And then they decided they didn't want to do the cabinets. And companies like the company I work for, Winona Industries, built the cabinets. And then they farmed the, then they farmed the electronics out to the Sonys and the Panasonics. And uh, so pretty soon the Sonys and the Panasonics decided, why are we making all of this guts and sending it to the United States? We want to just make our own product. And obviously there isn't a single, uh, there isn't a single electronics manufacturer left in the United States of uh, TVs, stereos, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, you know, I saw that cycle. So, you know, I knew what was going to happen because, you know, I'd walked in those moccasins, so to speak, uh, before. And uh, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to compete. Now, I'd have had three or four good years. I could have coasted. I had a brand new plant. I had good, healthy product lines. But there was no way in heck that I knew I could compete, uh, you know, in the long run. And I had to change what I was doing in the United States. And I had a lot of debt. I had brand new plants that were equipped to do occasional tables, not to do other products. And uh, I, had to, I had to switch and I had borrowed all the money that I could. I had banks that had a lot of confidence. I had a community. I had employees that had a lot of confidence uh, in what I did. I couldn't just let this thing go away. Uh, and it would have. But I, but I could have just ignored it and said, hey, everything is going to be okay. And I'd have probably ran okay for two or three years. But ultimately, as you saw happened, uh, that product line went away in the United States and it went overseas. And uh, so, so we had to make a transition and change to, to case goods, bedroom furniture in our plants. And it was a struggle. It was a struggle for our employees because case goods was a lot more disciplined than, than occasional tables and dimensions and drawers and and uh, you know complication of product compared to occasional tables. So it was a struggle. But we had to do it, and we also then had to start from scratch manufacturing at that time in Taiwan, at Ashley, Taiwan. So it was a struggle going back and forth, and I'd spend 50% of my time in Asia and 50% of it here, and uh, trying to juggle all the walls with a lot, all the balls with a lot of change. It was very challenging, and uh, you know, it was very primitive in Asia at that time. I mean, the uh, lifestyle over there was pretty tough. The roads, uh, the hotels, all of the conditions. Not too many people wanted to do that, but uh, but anyway, if you were going to surprise survive, you had to do it, and and we did it. Well, speaking of things that you have to survive or things that you have to overcome, you've said that uh, Wisconsin is probably not among the best places, ideal places to start a furniture business. Um, but in in retrospect, it actually caused you to do some things that probably have made your company stronger. Talk about that a little bit and the challenge of being in Arcadia and in Wisconsin. And what well, that first of all, the biggest disadvantage you had is you don't have raw materials there. You don't have MDF. You don't have particle board. You don't have a lot of other infrastructure in Wisconsin. You have almost zero. So that that's a challenge. But the logistics are the biggest challenge. So we had to establish our own transportation uh, trucks. And we have by today by far the largest uh, fleet in the industry, huge. And uh, and so we have to do that because we have to get our product to the market. We have to get it there safe. We have to get it there inexpensively. Uh, we have to get our raw materials back. Uh, 
is inexpensively because customers don't want to pay for waste, non-added value. And so transportation was very difficult. Along with that, uh, we have one of the largest intermodal yards in the United States, and uh, it's privately owned. It's ours, intermodal being containers that come in on a rail. It's private. It's one of seven uh, private yards. It was the only one in Wisconsin. Uh, so we had to do things logistically that other companies didn't have to do because of because of being located in Wisconsin and overcome the extra costs that we would have had if we didn't figure out how to minimize those costs. But today, you know, logistics is very important. And of course, over the years, we've opened up our Leesport, Pennsylvania plant, North Carolina plant, uh, Mississippi plant, uh, plants in Asia, plants in Wisconsin. Uh, you know, so, but originally we started out with one plant. We had to, we had to have very strong logistics uh, to get our products to the markets which are primarily on the East Coast, the West Coast, and the South. They're not in the middle of the United States. Uh, Canada doesn't have a lot, of, a lot of people, and it's a lot of wide open space, obviously. Uh, and our area, you know, you maybe got Chicago or Minneapolis, but other than that, uh, you don't have a lot of population density. So, so, so logistics was very, very important, and we were forced to do that. But today, logistics is really the name of the game. You know, we're in a sense a material hand in a material handling business, and uh, you have to be able to get your products to the market. Uh, E-commerce today is very important in all of the locations and this sort of thing. So, so you have to be really, really keen on logistics and not having extra costs. You got today. You have the challenges of getting the the product to the customer quicker than ever. And so the background that we had in logistics starting in 1972, developing our own transportation uh, and intermodal uh, was very, uh, very important and critical to what we do. And I might add, uh, you know, uh, we don't just run our containers or our, our uh, trucks empty. Uh, we do everything that we can to, to offset the cost, for example, when the containers and, uh, you know, we're, uh, I think, the sixth largest user of containers in the United States. Wow. Uh, you know, you know, we, we, uh, we work, you know, with our intermodal yards and, and that sort of thing so that the containers go back to Asia full. Uh, you know, we work uh, with sending commodities back, sending furniture back. Everything that we can do to, to lower the costs and everything that we do, uh, we, we, we obviously work to improve. Hope you're enjoying this edition of On the Record. This episode is brought to you by Klausner Home Furnishings, the leading solutions provider for the home furnishings industry. Once again, here is your host, Bill McLaughlin. Now, where did your GM ROI model come from? You talk about lowering costs. That's one of the things that you've been very successful at in lowering costs for your dealers. Um, where did the idea for that GM ROI model come from? Well, you know, I started out, I didn't have any money. And, uh, you know, I had, to, I had to turn the product quick. I had to bring the raw materials in. I had to manufacture them very quickly. And, uh, you know, in many cases, I would get paid before I had to pay my supplier. 
I mean, raw material, our work in process uh, spend very little time in our in our plants. And uh, you don't control your business either unless you control your bills. So I want to emphasize that that we always paid our bills on time and we always were able to demand the service that we needed, uh, getting the materials in on schedule when we needed them and uh, running them through the plant quickly and shipping them out quickly and managing inventories. And even today uh, with the huge inventories that we have, uh, it's really uh, not a huge inventory compared to the business that we do because we turn the business. But going back to 1970, when I first started manufacturing, the materials were in and out. And I'll tell you what, uh, you know, getting paid and doing business with people that paid you was always something that our company has done, continues to do. And uh, so that's that's where the, it, we didn't call it GMROI in the, in the 70s. Uh, and I'm not exactly sure where the term came from. And I picked it up someplace. Uh, I didn't originate the term, but it's gross margin return on inventory or, or, or investment, however you want to term it. Uh, so, and you were, it sounds like you were doing just in time before anybody was even using that term. Well, we started out, we had no choice. Our facilities were small. As a matter of fact, I would be embarrassed in the early days uh, when everybody bragged about how big their facility was, I, mine was quite small and the amount of business that I put through it, uh, you know, people would absolutely be shocked and maybe think that it wasn't possible or maybe not even want to do business with me because of the size of the facilities. But we turned those inventories and managed those inventories and always had unbelievable inventory control and, and control of our supply chain and, and everything and still do today. But, uh, you know, turning inventories uh, creates what I call magic numbers. It's amazing what GMR, GMROI can do and the magic numbers that they can create. Kind of like a grocery store, you know, the, the turns, the fast turns that they get. I mean, they have to work on very low margins. And if you have fast turns, you can work on much lower margins. That's the whole concept. Hmm. Despite the fact that you went in to, uh, to Asia in 1984, you have always remained very committed to domestic manufacturing. You, to, even today, uh, Ecru Mississippi is probably one of, if not the largest um, motion factories in the country and possibly in the world. You've got plants here in North Carolina, California. Tell me a little bit about why domestic manufacturing remains so important. Well, you know, the majority of our product is made in the United States. Uh, 65% of it's made in the United States. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, we believe that you have to be based in the United States and you have to manufacture products. And especially today, I mean, uh, with, uh, you know, the, the demands that are being put on in Amazon with next day service or two day service or whatever it is, is resetting the bar and the customer expectations today is much faster. So having domestic facilities here, and I might add that the plant in Arcadia is the largest case goods factory in the world. And uh, just like the, the plant in Ecru was, uh, maybe is, uh, largest upholstery uh, plant. But, uh, but, but, but anyway, you know, doing a variety of products in a plant uh, and also, you know, 
used to be used to brag about how many plants you had. Uh, today, you brag about how few you have and how flexible they are uh, to, to, to be diverse in the product lines that they can produce, uh, how fast you can cycle the lines, that sort of thing. So, so that's something that our company has always believed in. And technology today is uh, really, really important, uh, automating our factories. And that's a challenge because the educational system in the United States, you have to do your own education because you really don't have technical education, at least in most of the areas uh, that, that we need it, uh, that's readily available. And so, you know, with that comes a whole new challenge in education and automation and building equipment and staying competitive. So in uh, keeping your plants absolutely up to speed, you know, Ashley has been has spent a couple billion dollars in the in the past uh, in the past years here, uh, you know, upgrading and automating our plants, uh, expanding our plants. And if you don't do that continually, uh, you're not going to be in the game. But we're optimistic about manufacturing in the United States. And, uh, you know, it's it's gotten better in the last few years here with the relaxation of some of the crazy regulatory stuff that was put on us and it was really making it impossible to manufacture in the United States. But but today it's good. These are good times. We're manufacturing in the United States today and we're optimistic about the future. Well, you have said one of the biggest challenges and I and you just alluded to it is um, workers, right? And the, you, you've said the only way you're going to get your next generation of workers is to grow them yourself. Um, you've invested, or Ashley has invested a lot of money um, in supporting STEM education in the communities that you work in and that you operate in. Um, talk a little bit about the lack of STEM education and some of the things that you've had to do uh, to try to develop that next generation of worker. Well, it doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist. The universities really don't, don't have, a, a, you know, the the STEM education anymore. Uh, you know, education is a business and it costs three to five times as much to train an engineer as it does uh, somebody in liberal arts. And uh, and the equipment that you need to equip a lab, uh, like uh, our lab in Arcadia is like, has about $2 million worth of equipment. And we also built a mobile skills laboratory that uh, goes around to the different schools. That was, uh, that was $3 million, you know, when you look at the cost per student, just with the education and the technology and the fact that you're gonna to have to pay a good uh, engineering type teacher, probably 30 to 50% more than a liberal arts teacher, what do, you think the, what do you think the tech schools and the universities wanna do? Mm -hmm. They wanna look at their costs and they can have 50 kids or 40 kids in a, in a classroom with a professor uh, or having uh, uh, 20 kids or 30 kids are in a, in a laboratory that's got $3 million worth of equipment in addition to a professor or, or technical teacher that costs 30 to 50% more than a regular teacher. And if you don't pay these guys that today, uh, they're gonna go to work for industry because obviously the market's really tight. One of the things I'd like to talk about is, you talked about the skills lab that you put together. That wasn't something you just randomly did. Um, you you actually studied other educational systems around the world, didn't you? Yes. You know, obviously, universities, community colleges, high schools come to you and want money. You know, we're not just going to give somebody money. So if we're going to give them money, 
we're going to support them. Then we have to know what we're going to support. So, so we have to do a research ourselves and look at look around the United States. And we visited over a hundred universities, community colleges, high schools in the United States and around the world to figure out who was doing it the best. And by the way, in the United States, Indiana is absolutely the best. They have the best system uh, with their Ivy Tech system that they have there. Best, mm -hmm. best, very best. Wisconsin on the east side, the Fox River Valley has a good system. And maybe there's some other areas in the United States, but those are those are really the two top uh, areas for technical education in the United States. Other than that, you got Germany and you got China and uh, you got other countries, too. But in the United States, somebody comes and uh, wants some support or money for education. Uh, we want to know and we want to be able to give them advice and we want to be able to make the investment uh, that that's going to be a, a good investment. Otherwise, uh, otherwise uh, you're wasting your money. And we also want to give them guidance. We give them a lot of guidance uh, in terms of, uh, you know, our people will help them in setting up their laboratories, their curriculum, uh, hiring qualified teachers. So the worst thing that you can do is give somebody money. You know, if you're not going to get a result of the investment, you shouldn't do it. And you better, you better know what you're talking about if you're going to be critical of them. So we found that the only way that we can do to meet our goal is to have our own education system. So, so, so that's what we've done at Ashley. That speaking of being very results focused, you, Ashley and the Wanak family are very large philanthropic givers. Um, you, you actually made a major commitment through City of Hope to type one diabetes, but it was also tied to results. Tell me how you got started in um, philanthropy and how you carried that results philosophy through even into your philanthropy? Well, we've got many charitable causes, but the two big ones are uh, Heart Research Project at Mayo Clinic, which we've been in, I believe, now for 11 years. And it's been a huge, uh, and it's been a huge uh, investment. And we don't make these investments unless they make certain milestones. And they've done a wonderful job on, uh, in, at Mayo Clinic, and they're on schedule to cure what's hypoplastic left, left heart syndrome, uh, an area of disease of the heart that uh, little kids are born with. And also the city of Hope of Diabetes. We're on schedule to have a cure for diabetes and another, uh, originally the goal was, was for six years. And uh, I think we're two years into it now. And we think that we're gonna meet the goal of having a cure for type one diabetes in about four years. I believe that, I believe that uh, it's about three years yet to run. Maybe it's, uh, and, uh, but they're very optimistic that they're on schedule and they're making a lot of progress. And rather than giving money to various institutions and this sort of thing, uh, if, you don't give a, if you don't give it to them with certain objectives in mind, and these have been large donations, I'm not talking about, we make a lot of small donations, but if they want major programs, they gotta meet certain milestones just like we have to in our business. So, uh, so that's the criteria that we've always set up. But, uh, but these, are, these are huge investments, huge, huge programs. The one at Mayo Clinic has absolutely been a huge uh, dollar factor. Uh, Todd's daughter was born with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And I told Todd at one point, I says, Todd, I can't believe you're spending all this money. 
And he says, I'll spend every dime I've got if I can save her life. I completely understand that. I think I think any parent would. And type 1 diabetes is also very personal for your family, isn't it? Yep. Yep, we have type 1 diabetes in our family. But also, there'll probably be an offshoot for, be an offshoot for type 2 diabetes that we get type 1 diabetes uh, taken care of. So we're very excited. And, and uh, again, City of Hope is a great organization. As you know, the industry also does a lot of sponsorship with City of Hope. So it's an exciting program. Um, people know your furniture contributions, but I, I'm not sure how many people know in the industry that you are also very creative. Um, you work with the city of Arcadia to create uh, the Soldiers Walk at Memorial Park, um, and you actually uh, designed and cast some of those statues. Talk about why you um, undertook the effort for the Soldiers Walk at Memorial Park in Arcadia. Well, we started this project in 1990, and uh, anyway, uh, I quite honestly was never in the military, and uh, a lot of my friends were in, in uh, Vietnam. I was one of the fortunate ones that uh, when Kennedy became president, he lowered the draft age down to 18 years old and kind of skipped over me. Uh, so, uh, so I never was I never was in the military, but a lot of my friends were, and I was going to do a monument to Vietnam, which I did. And uh, then the, the city did, the city was uh, looking to develop this park. And uh, we decided I'd been to Europe and the walks like in Paris and London and different places like that. And I suggested that they develop this walk, this timeline walk, and we do military uh, history along that walk. And it starts, uh, the walk starts in 1848 when Wisconsin became a state. It goes forward 500 years or 500 meters, and it has significant events that happened uh, as you walk down the walk. Uh, uh, you know, the United States has been involved in over 200 instances overseas uh, over the years, uh, but it, we certainly don't have 200 of them. But we got the the major wars, and the wars that were prior to to 1848, like the War of Independence, Revolutionary War, War of 1812, uh, uh, Spanish-American War, uh, those, those, those wars uh, are prior to the walk starting. And so you walk down the walk and it's a time walk through history. But af after I developed the Vietnam one, uh, I was gonna put that in a different location. I decided to put it in its appropriate place on the walk. And then after I did that, I thought, well, my dad was, uh, was World War II generation. My grandfather was World War One generation, and uh, so then I just kept going. Civil War, uh, war, uh, the Middle East War, all all of these other wars, and I think I got about, I think I got uh, thirty about thirty different monuments that we've uh, built that we've uh, put on this walk over the years. Now, now these aren't just statues that you had somebody commission. You were personally involved in creating these, correct? Yeah, all of the all of the original ones, uh, the last couple ones now, I didn't do myself personally, but uh, all of the early ones I did, I created, uh, did all of the research on them, uh, did all of the models on them, uh, and uh, today I don't spend that amount of time on it anymore, and I don't really do a lot of them, but I've done, I've done a couple of major ones in the last uh, few years. I did a, I did a, uh, I did a 
James Reed was the first white settler in our area uh, on a horse. And uh, I did a, I did another uh, monument, uh, which is a, a mentoring monument, uh, which uh, shows myself, Todd, and our three grandchildren uh, uh, type of thing when the year was 2000. So those are two major works that I've done in the last uh, few years. But other than that, I really don't have a lot going like I did for quite a number of years. Speaking of, of Todd and your grandchildren, Ashley is going to celebrate its 75th anniversary. You have a major event planned for um, the upcoming Las Vegas market in a couple of weeks. Um, tell me a little bit about that event and how Ashley is preparing for the next generation in the business. Well, we're fortunate. Uh, obviously, the business is, is much larger today, and uh, Travis Wagner, uh, my grandson, uh, he is uh, senior vice president of global manufacturing, and uh, Todd says he's the best manufacturing guy he's ever known in the business. High and, praise uh, coming he, from uh, somebody who does that himself. Yeah, he uh, he uh, obviously I think he spent ten years, maybe eleven years in Asia, building up our Vietnam facilities uh, from from uh, like three hundred employees when he went to Vietnam to. I believe we're at 17,000 today. Wow. Uh, so, uh, so uh, anyway, and he was instrumental in doing that in all aspects of the business and construction and engineering and product and everything. So today he's running our global manufacturing. He's based out of North Carolina today. And uh, obviously Laura Forsythe is uh, finance and she spent three years in Asia uh, developing stores uh, and, uh, learning all aspects of the business over there. And Cameron Wanick is in uh, IT in uh, that area and, and have, heads up uh, all of our IT uh, area and uh, global global sourcing, I guess, uh, what do we call it, supply chain management. So, so these are all big areas today. And, uh, you know, it's tough. It's tough today for somebody to get their arms around the entire business because it's so complicated. It's not uh, as easy it was, you know, for myself and maybe Todd. Uh, today, the business is much larger and uh, more complicated. You're dealing globally. We sell in 161 different countries, and uh, so so it's uh, it, it's complicated in manufacturing and the logistics of doing a, a global business, and getting products everywhere, and understanding all the rules, regulations, laws, and all those things that go with it, it's really complicated. So yeah, we're lucky. And uh, the family has is well positioned with the third uh, generation that's coming up. I must say that our plants are absolutely leading edge in technology and, and equipment. Uh, today, our product lines are healthy, uh, very healthy and current. So, you know, we're, we're very optimistic about the future. What advice would, and I'm sure that you speak with your grandchildren all the time and give them lots of advice anyway, but what do you think are the, the couple of pieces of advice that you hope that they take with them and always remember as they move forward into their, their turn at the wheel, so to speak? Well, you know, you have to, you, you have to, if you understand the business, you'll get out and you'll stay in contact with customers, employees, Vendors, if you don't understand the business, uh, you maybe don't do that. And uh, 
you know, if you talk to people and you seek advice and you you constantly learn what's 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 happening and pay attention and you know don't ignore things and deal with them, uh, you know you'll be successful. Uh, if you if you don't if you don't want to be out there and you don't want to get involved and understand it and understand it. You know, if you see something that isn't right, you don't want to deal with it. Uh, the business probably isn't for you. That's great advice. And of course, I don't want my kids to think that. <laughs> well, that's great advice. And I think that's a great place to wrap up. Ron, I really appreciate you t- taking the time to speak with our audience today. Um, my guest this week was Ron Wanick, chairman of Ashley Furniture Industries. Look forward to seeing you in Vegas. Thank you, Bill, and look forward to seeing you. <laughs>